Morning, everyone. Happy New Year's Eve in the morning. 2024, can you believe it? I just can't believe we're there. So, welcome. I just wanted to welcome you all here. Good to see you all this morning. And I wanted to talk about the call of duty, the service into the Lord's army. You know, as I was putting this message together, uh, my daughter walked in the room and saw the title slide here, Call of Duty, and she said, are you doing a sermon on video game? I said, no, kind of laughing. You know, I, said, I, I stole the name because I thought it's applicable to this, but uh, nothing to do about a video game. If you're 20s, you know, teens in here, you're familiar with that game, I'm sure. So sorry to disappoint you ahead of time, but uh, we will not be going over anything like that or discussing Modern Warfare 3, anything. So, but we will be discussing this call into the Lord's army. And in past generations, it's, it was common, you know, to be called in the military, to, to go and serve. You know, my grandparents' generation, that was common. They, they did that, and then my father's as well. It's just, you graduate high school, you enter the service, serve your country, or maybe it's after college. It's quite common to do. And in the lives of the men in Israel, this was common as well. The ones that, uh, you know, entered the promised land with, Je with Joshua, uh, all able-bodied men were expected to go to war, to go to battle if need be. You know, they may be a, a shepherd or a tradesman or a craftsman of some sort. Uh, but if it came to it, if they needed to, they were to drop everything, pick up weapons, and go to war. Something that many of us here, are, it's foreign to us. You know, we've enjoyed, you know, a safe life within the compounds of this country, haven't we? We've enjoyed that. So this morning we're going to read the account of a man by the name of Gideon. Some of you are familiar in the story. We'll be reading out of chapter 6, uh, the book of Judges. So, But before we do, uh, I'd like to pray, if you would. Lord Father, we just thank you for this time together. We thank you for blessing this time to bring us together at the end of this year, to begin a new one, Lord. And we just pray right now for the next few moments as we gather together. We just pray that, Holy Spirit, you would move through our midst and just touch each one of us. Open our hearts. Let us hear you, Lord, as, as, as you speak through me, as, at the words that you've given me to, to speak to and this topic. Just get, let me get out of the way, Lord. Let people see you. Let them see the cross. Let them see Jesus, Lord. I just pray that you uh, would bless this time. I give you all the glory, Lord, and we just thank you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So, again, a quick a little backdrop a little bit before we read into the passage here. Gideon was one of 15 judges uh, for Israel. Now, judges we're familiar with, uh, wear the black robes and oversee legal cases. You know, it's no different than in the Bible, too, in the biblical times. They also had judges that did that, but also a judge in that time was considered a ruler or chieftain or, or a military leader. And in this time period, between the time God led them, the Israelites, out of Egypt uh, to the point that Saul was anointed king of Egypt, or king of Israel, excuse me, judges ruled over the people. Some scholars see Moses as the first judge of Israel as he helped to institute the legal system. Remember Jethro, Moses' father-in-law? Remember how he came to the wilderness to check on Moses and to commune with him and 
And he saw Moses morning to night. What does he do? He's sitting there solving and helping solve cases and disputes between the people. And Jethro came to him and said, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. You need to select some men and, and delegate this and set up groups with the different tribes and let them handle those disputes and settle those. And anything they can't handle, they would bring up to Moses. It's very similar. That's where we get, you know, base our legal system on that. We have the lower courts, and anything that they can't solve or dispute is appealed up to higher courts on up to our Supreme Court. So, yet most Jewish scholars recognize Joshua actually as the first judge of Israel, followed by a series of judges up until Saul was anointed king. It's estimated after spending 40 years in the desert that the Israelites entered the Promised Land about 1572 B.C. This event we read in Judges is where Gideon defeats the Midianites was around 1184 B.C., so just under 400 years or so since uh, Israel took over the Promised Land. These judges, they were chosen by God for the purpose of rescuing the Jewish people from their enemies as well as establishing justice and and uh, practice of law among the people. So as you read through Judges, you'll see this constant cycle you know, that Israel went through, falling away from God, being delivered in the enemy's hand, and then them crying out to God for deliverance. And then God would raise a judge up to deliver them. We see the reason for this, the reason for God raising judges up. It's found in Judges 17, verse 6. This is the New King James Version. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this gives you some context and some backdrop. So let's turn to Judges uh, chapter 6, verses 11, 16 through 16. I'll be reading from the New King James. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abzirite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to them, O Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. You know, all throughout scriptures we find, and I find this encouraging, is that God continually calls the underdog, doesn't he? We love underdogs. We always root for them. You know, the normal, everyday person, the ordinary. You know, he selects those for a reason. We see this in the Old Testament, and we see it in the disciples he selected as well, right? Now here we see Gideon, now, as I mentioned, this is about some 388 years, to be precise, after Israel entered the Promised Land. Within that first generation, shortly after the death of Joshua, we already see Israel falling into disobedience. 
We see them taking over the territories, but what did they not do as God instructed? They did not drive out the people, the inhabitants who were there, did they? This is a map on the screen here. This is of Israel and the different tribes that settled there. And right there, it's hard to kind of see, but you can see in the middle there, I highlighted Gideon. Uh, that's in the, the territory of Ishakar there in Oprah. But you can see the other areas throughout the whole country. This was a countrywide issue when they went into these territories. So these are the different areas that God had to raise judges up to help deliver them from the peoples in those areas. So, you know, due to their disobedience, what did that do? This resulted in the intermarrying with foreign inhabitants, and then they, what, they fell into idolatry and began worshiping the, worshiping the false gods of that land. And so as, as a result, we see the repetitive theme throughout the book stating, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into dot, 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 the Philistines, the Canaanites, whoever it was. In this case, it was the Mennonites. Now, the Mennonites were a huge nomadic group that lived in the Sinai Peninsula. They were a type of raiding group. They teamed up with the Amechalites, and they went all over the area, raiding villages and homes and pillaging. Scripture describes them as numerous as locusts. To kind of give you an idea, I mean, locusts devour land ahead of them. So they would go in destroying crops and livestock, and as a result, Israel resulted to fleeing to the mountains and living in caves in the dens. And this is such a place where the angel of the Lord came and met Gideon, who was threshing wheat to do what? To hide it from being destroyed by the Midianites. But I want to highlight verse 12. Look at how the angel of the Lord addresses Gideon. He says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and he said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. It's interesting, because to this point, we know nothing of Gideon that suggests <coughs> excuse me, suggest any type of warrior or conqueror. Perhaps he'd taken part in some previous battle, but we really don't know. His, his demeanor seems to say that if he had before, his confidence had somehow long left him. You know, we see his faith lacking in, in, in him personally. He didn't believe anything could be done for him or for Israel. You know, it's interesting, several commentators on this verse state that the salutation that the angel of the Lord uses here, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor, they're saying that this angel encouraged him, and in God's strength this would be done. doesn't matter what you think, Gideon. doesn't matter how you feel. In God's strength this will be done. The angel of the Lord then explains to him that he's going to, do, that he's going to deliver Israel from the Midianites. He's going to use Gideon to do so. You know, Gideon had a similar response that Moses did at the burning bush, we see. You know, we're replying basically, why me? What have I done? I'm the weakest. I'm the weakest in Israel. I'm the weakest. I'm the less of all my family. I can't do this. Get the Lord... The Lord replied to him and said, Surely I will be with you. You shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Surely you shall defeat. You know, as some of you might be familiar with, Gideon continues to doubt himself and requests the Lord to give him a couple signs, which the Lord obliges and he does. 
And to summarize the rest of the account, through a selective group of only 300 men, the Lord goes before him and slays 120,000 warriors. It's a great story. It highlights how God selects the lowly and the weak, and it does these things through his strength. That's so incredible. You know, our call to the Lord's service probably won't look like that. We won't be called to conquer any lands, most likely, or pick, a, pick up any weapons to do so. Yet, if we accept this call to duty into his service to further his kingdom, we're to do as he commanded, right? We're to, to share the gospel, to baptize, to go and make disciples of men. We're expected to yield to him in order to grow in obedience and faith. Oh, it's refreshing, isn't it, that he doesn't wait until we're strong and polished? No, he, he calls us when we're sometimes at our weakest state. He often works for those who are timid or those who, who lack faith. We can all see ourselves in Gideon, I think, sometimes, can't we? You know, our, our faith is weak, but God patiently works through us, just as he did through Gideon here. He strengthens, he encourages him until he's able to carry out the mission that God called him for. He's honing us, he's refining us. Often these struggles that we go through, they're, they're self-inflicted, aren't they? It's, it's due to our selfish nature, nature and we fall into this repetitive sin, but he never leaves us, he never forsakes us. He promises that if we call on him, he will guide us and lead us, amen? Oh, that's refreshing. See, God sees us in our finished state. He sees us as overcomers. He sees us as conquerors. So if we accept this call to join him in his kingdom business, he expects commitment. There's a cost to following him. Here's a principal point I wanted to make. For such a high calling, a high commitment is required and nothing less will do. For such a high calling, a high commitment is required, and nothing less will do. In his letter to, to Timothy, the Apostle Paul says this, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Let that sink in a little bit. Listen to the language Paul uses here. He reminds us we're not our own. We were bought for a price by the blood of Jesus Christ, weren't we? We're not to take this on and fizzle out, you know, allowing the world's pleasures to draw us away from, from the service that he called us to do. Similar to that parable that Jesus talked about, about the sowing of the seeds, how, how some seed, was, as it grew, was choked out by the weeds. The weeds represent the cares of the world. Please remember another principal point. There is not a more honorable position than to be called to serve in the kingdom of God. That's so true. We're, we're all his church. We are all the body. We all have different functions, and, and as Paul describes elsewhere, none are more or less more important. We all have an important part in his kingdom. And I, I felt the need to reiterate here, please. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. I'm not talking about that. Your salvation is a free gift from God through the blood of Christ. And as it's written, we must only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. 
That's all. And we're saved from our sin and receive the full forgiveness and salvation. And once forgiven, the God, God begins the sanctification process to build us up in Christ. In this, James instructs that we must walk in faith and that our works will reveal the faith that we have in Christ and be a testimony to others. We must sell ourselves out to Christ. Our hearts must change and be willing to surrender to him. Now, in, in Luke, Jesus shows us the level of commitment required to be a disciple. This is Luke 14, verses 26 to 33. This is the New King James Version again. Listen to the words of the Savior. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother, his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish? Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down and first consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. Watch this. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus is using this extreme example, isn't he? He's using this to make his case. He's emphatic, saying, look, I don't want you to get into this and be surprised. It'll be tough at times, but I'll be with you. It'll be my strength and in my time. But there's a cost to following me, Jesus is saying. You must be willing to forsake your finances, your comforts, your relationships, your time, your plans, even your own life for my sake. He says, I want to make this very clear up front. And he tells us, don't say I didn't tell you. So, he also says elsewhere in Luke 9, 62, he says, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So let me ask some questions. You don't have to say anything out loud. Just to yourself is fine. But if an angel of the Lord came to you this evening with an encouraging word how God is going to send you to do blank, whatever that is. Say he comes to you and says, I'm going to do this through you. What would you do? Think about that a moment. How would you react? You know, Gideon was no different than us. You realize that? He puts on his tunic one arm at a time just like we do. I bet he was just as surprised as you or I would be. Or what about this? What if a man that they called Jesus came to your place of business and said, follow me? Would you drop your fishing nets? Would you leave your boat, give up your client base, and follow him? What if he came to your work? What if he walked into your office, walked up to your desk, 
and said, follow me. Would you drop everything and, and follow him? Or say you had just sat down to a son's basketball game. Courtside seats, game seven, NBA finals. Got your ice cold beer in one hand. You got your Polish dog in the other. You just sat down and this man called Jesus walked up to you and said, follow me. He came to you at the most inconvenient and opportune time and asked you to forsake all and follow him honestly. Would you do it? What would you say? Honest questions. How about this? If some armed men came to your house, some military police came to your house and arrested you and your family, and we're going to take you and throw you in a prison camp where you'd be separated, most likely never see each other again. But all you had to do to be free, all you had to do to be free was to denounce that Jesus is your God. What would you do? What would you say? Yeah, I'm no different than you. I am no different than you. That's a, that's a hard thing to think about, isn't it? But this is exactly why Jesus spoke those words as he did. He's warning us. He's telling us, I want to convey this to you. You can't have it both ways. He hates mediocre. He hates lukewarm. He makes that very clear in, in, in Revelation. He's asking us to think about it ahead of time, to calculate the cost of following him. The rewards are unimaginable, unfathomable, eternal life in the presence of Almighty God in heaven. But Think of it, for a short time here on earth, in our fleshy, broken bodies, there's a cost to following Jesus. The world hates us. The world hates you for being a Christian. But remember, they hated Jesus first. So Jesus is asking you, who are you going to serve? Now, more than likely, an angel of the Lord won't appear to any of you tonight, you know, and ask you to conquer the Scottsdaleites or the Sun City Grandites. <laughs> Jesus physically probably won't show up to your place of employment as he did the disciples. But you do realize he has already called you. You're here. You're, you're a chosen people. You are the bride of Christ. Think of that. See, he may not call us to, to conquer lands or to, to preach to millions in stadiums across the country. But he's already called you in and instructed you. Share the gospel. Share to others. Baptize men and women in the name of, of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Go tell your testimony to others. Go make disciples of men and women. You know, perhaps he's put on your heart to, maybe it's to speak to that neighbor across the street that doesn't know you. Maybe it's just to befriend him or her. That's all. You know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's starting a Bible study, you know, at work, before work with a couple people. Maybe that's it. You know, maybe it's teaching Sunday school a couple times a month or, or, or helping with chairs or the sound, but whatever it is. Do they come at convenient times in your schedule? No. Rarely do they not. Typically not. But remember, we were bought with a price. Our time and our bodies are not our own, as the Apostle Paul says. 
Most of the times we don't see the fruit of our labor. You know, we, we may plant, we may water, another harvests. God does the work in His time and by His will. You know, the things we do sometimes may seem insignificant and small, but behind the scenes we have a God doing extraordinary things who is always working, right? So pray, Lord, what would you have your servant do? So let me close, if I could, with a quick story here. This is about a man who lives in China, a young man by the name of, of Ming. In a dark alleyway, Ming loads heavy boxes into the trunk of his car. These boxes, should he be caught with them, he'd be arrested and probably sent to prison. He pulled out his phone and texted his contacts, I'm on the way, my way to the old place, he types. Then he turns off his phone, removes the SIM card, so he can't be tracked. What he's doing could be, could be considered a crime by the authorities, but what he's loading in his car isn't dangerous or going to ruin any people's lives. He's, his criminal cargo is Bibles, and his mission is to give God's word to as many people as quickly and discreetly as possible. Even in his text messages, Ming is careful. The old place is code. See, in the region of China where Ming is from, citizens' phones are monitored and their social media apps are highly controlled. Any wrong word could cost him whatever freedom that he has left. Ming's path toward becoming a secret believer in China wasn't easy. He's no stranger to persecution. Some areas in China are stricter than others. The first time he encountered persecution for his faith was at home. I received Christ when I was in college, he says. I told my father about my faith and hoped he would accept me, but he did not, and instead he called the police. I was devastated. Ming was confined to his home for a few months. Even after that, his father prevented him from attending school in the area. He had to relocate to another area in southern China where he had to start all from scratch. Yet the Lord blessed his decision. Over the years, Ming was able to take root in a new place, which had lesser restrictions as well as some small underground churches he could attend. In time, Ming became a business owner, earned good income, married a beautiful wife, had a beautiful daughter. And at church, Ming grew deeper in his faith in Jesus. It was there that I learned much more about Christ and how good God is, he shares. This was also a turning point for me. Learning about Jesus also made me realize that my friends and community back home needed Jesus too. The Lord touched Ming and placed a burden on his heart and prompted him in a still, small voice. He said, go back to your hometown. Tell people about me there. Ming could have stayed where he was in southern, where he was in southern China, where he and his family enjoyed relative comfort with lesser restrictions, but... Ming obeyed. He gave up everything he owned and he moved back. Back to the city with all the restrictions where the authorities ruled with an iron fist and neighbors were made to spy on each other. In faithful obedience, Ming returned to where each and every move was just observed, cataloged and filed away to be used against him if necessary. Soon Ming began to make new connections in his hometown. He started leading small groups secretly meeting believers in inconspicuous places to share the Word of God. He set up a new company with a group of believers, which also served as a cover business to deliver Bibles. 
The business thrived. But one day, it was exposed, and Ming and his business partners were all arrested. Miraculously, though, he was set free. His business partners were not as fortunate. I was freed from my charges, but I lost my company, Ming remembers. But even out of jail, he was still being watched. Since getting out of prison, authorities still randomly show up and search his house. On top of his legal troubles, Ming's family life has crumbled. For their protection, he sent his wife and his daughter back to his son-in-law's house or his in-law's house. I was living under the radar. I needed to protect my family, he said. Because of my belief in Jesus, my father-in-law prevented me from seeing my wife and daughter. Now he's pushing my wife and I to divorce. The arrest, the loss of his business, and the conflict with his wife's family all have taken their toll on me. I had no one to trust. I felt insecure and isolated. Ming's faith is strong, but he's been mentally exhausted in this journey, he says. Yet the Holy Spirit moves in his heart, and he's been able to slowly develop trust with someone who's once again starting to lead small groups and continues to share the good news of Jesus. And that's it. This is a few, men, a few months ago. You know, his story's not finished. I'd love to tell you that he went and reconciled with his dad and he led him to Christ, but we don't know that he has. I'd love to be able to tell you that he was able to reconcile with his father-in-law so he could see his wife and his daughter again and live together. But we don't know that either. We don't know that that's happened. Or that his friends are out of prison, doing fine, but as of this writing, they were still in prison. See, there's a cost to following Jesus. Many thousands around the world, their story is similar to me. You know, God willing, we may never have to encounter the persecution that Ming does and others face on a daily basis, but we must prepare our hearts that that day should come where we'd be forced to choose. That's why Jesus said those words he does. That's why we read that. Just like Joshua said to Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. I love it because God raises up ordinary people doing extraordinary things through the power of God and for the glory of God. Amen? There's no higher calling, is there? Than to be called to duty in the service for the kingdom of God. Paul tells us the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I'll leave you with this question, then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you were told that you could be eternally with the Lord in heaven, in joy and peace and the presence and overwhelming love and hope, that you would have blessings beyond comprehension in this, in this heaven that words cannot be described. Literally, we don't have words to describe what heaven looks like. But to get that, you would have to suffer for a short time just as Ming has, just as others have, and we've read it here about, to suffer for a short time in this life for God's purpose, for the glory of his kingdom, would you do it? Would you say in faith, yes, Lord, I'll do it. I'm all in.
I'll follow you. Send me. Send me. It's something to think about. I pray for all of you. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Father, thank you again. Thank you again for all of you. Again for all of us. We just, we just praise you. You are with us wherever we go, wherever, whatever struggle or challenge we're facing. Please bless those that heard to hear this message. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Each one of us is unique in your eyes. Open up our spiritual eyes, Lord, and our ears, and help us engage in your kingdom work where you can direct each one of us. I just I pray your blessings on each one of us this coming year. May we walk in your faith and our giving and our resources and time in your kingdom. May they grow as we grow in Christ for your glory. May your kingdom continue to grow and may the darkness cower and hide as your glory shines brighter. We just praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. We pray you allow this message to transform you to take what you learned and share the love of Jesus to those around you. You can stay informed and connected by following Discovery Point Church on all social media platforms. Thank you and God bless you.